Well, I want to tell you about uh, 24 years ago. It was a, a Thursday evening, July 2nd, 1998. On that occasion, I think there were about 14 people. We met in the basement of a, uh, a home here in Rockford. As we began to meet as a, as a body of people that eventually turned into Rock Valley Bible Church. And uh, exactly, we, we met Thursday evenings, two years, in the privacy of a, of a home. And then two years later, Jan, July 2nd, 2000, on a Sunday evening, uh, a group of us began to meet in a, a public place. We rented a church building. Uh, on Sunday nights, we met. And uh, I have some pictures here. This is the the very first meeting we ever had publicly at uh, Rock Valley Bible Church. And as kind of from the back, we had a bunch of people come up from Kishwaukee Bible Church just to encourage us. We were like twice or three times as big as we, we were, but kind of there's half the crowd on one side. Um, there's one guy in there you might recognize. You might recognize a couple of people. If you know, there's Gordy Bell. There's Lance Milton is uh, just right here in the bottom, bottom right you kind of just see his head. Um, he's, he's right there. Tim, I don't know if you and Wendy were there. I didn't see you in the picture. Maybe you should. I, I don't, I'm not sure if you were there that, that day. Your parents were. I saw that. Start of the church. Um, you can see the, the Devon's playing her clarinet up there. <laughs> and uh, you can see that uh, I'm playing my guitar. Uh, back in the early days at Orion, we weren't blessed with him. It was the Stephen Devon show. I played my guitar and and uh, Avon tooted her horn, and uh, we, had a, we had a good time. Uh, just to give you some context about how long ago that was, uh, that's SR. What? It's crazy, huh? Who has since been married and off to Colorado and uh, working and, and doing his job. And uh, here's me preaching a very first sermon at Rock Valley Bible Church. And uh, on that occasion, I have some words that I I grabbed from my notes. I said this. I said, welcome. This is an exciting evening. Tonight's another step, seeing the establishment of a church in Rockford. Tonight, we begin our Sunday night meetings. Tonight, we're in a public facility for the first time, which enables us to be more proactive with respect to making our group known. What we began as a home Bible study two years ago here in Rockford is still continuing forward, but the reason why is our passion is the establishment of churches is because Paul's passion to plant churches as well. It's very appropriate for us to take a look at the start of a church. The church we're going to look at this morning is the church of the Thessalonians, which met in the city of Thessalonica. The message this evening would be appropriate for us this evening as we're meeting here in Rockford to the same desire that Paul had, and I quote from a little brochure that we had, quote, we desire the establishment of a local church here in Rockford. And that Sunday evening, some 20 plus years ago, um, I directed people to open their Bibles to Acts chapter 17, which I direct you to as well. Acts chapter 17 gives the historical context of the church in Thessalonica. We preached Acts chapter 17 first, and then I preached through uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this is one of those rare occasions where I have uh, turned to a a text that I have preached before, though a few of you were there, and I'm not preaching exactly the same message, because the purpose there was to introduce 1 Thessalonians. Our purpose purpose here is to bring us through uh, the the storyline of the message of, of Acts. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the church in Thessalonica. 
And again, just to remind you of how they, they, they got there, we've been working our way through the book of Acts. Paul's on a second missionary journey, having left from Antioch in Syria, going north into Cilicia, traveling across uh, southern Galatia, eventually reaching Troas, where he received the Macedonian vision, went up to Macedonia, went there to Philippi, and eventually now he is landing in Thessalonica which you can see just right there is, is where we are. And we read of what took place in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, verses uh, 1 through 9. Hear this. Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, in fact, you can see those right there on the map. There's Amphipolis there and, and Apollonia uh, right there on the map. They came then to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And they'd taken money as security from Jason and the rest. They let them go. The title of my message this morning is Turning the World Upside Down. It comes right there in verse 6. What the citizens of Thessalonica were saying. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel turns the world upside down, or more accurately, it turns the world what? Right side up. From an unbelieving perspective, it disrupts the world and turns it upside down. From a believing perspective, it makes it all right and turns it right side up as it restores the created order. When we who are created in the image of God were meant for fellowship with the Lord, where that has been, been alienated and we've been separated because of our sin, the Coming to faith in Christ restores that relationship right there with the Lord. When God was once your enemy becomes your faithful father. When God's wrath was once upon you, now you know his mercy and grace. It's restoring everything as it should be created to be. It's returning it right side up. When you receive the Lord and become part of his family, it's it's back to the way that God created you to be. And yet those who don't believe don't see this as a welcome sight The world hates it when people come to Jesus because it strikes at their conscience because they know how they're not living according to the way of the Lord and they see someone else repent. They know that that's what they should do, but they don't want to do. They want to walk in their sins in their own ways. They hate the Lord and want to go after that. And their perspective is, as these people are going here, they're going to disrupt things. They're turning the world upside down. That's what we see in our text this morning, right? We're going to see many people receive the gospel. Those in Thessalonica, where their revival breaks out, we see many people being turned right side up, and yet we see many people resisting that, claiming the world has been turned upside down. It's always how the, the gospel is when it's preached. Some accept it, and some reject it. 
Well, we're going to see those who accepted it first in my, my first point here this morning. We're going to call it a, a great reception. Uh, that's what we see in the first four verses. We see a great reception. Verse 1 tells us, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now when Paul was on his missionary journey, his custom was to travel into the synagogues, right? Wherever they were. We saw that when he he left uh, Antioch. He went to the island of Cyprus. And he went through that whole island from east to west, preaching the gospel in all the synagogues. And then he went up north into city in Antioch. And he preached the gospel in the synagogue uh, up there. And when he came to Iconium, he, he visited the synagogue first thing. And, and that was Paul's pattern. Right? That, that, that's what he did. He went to the synagogue first. I mean, theologically he did that because of Romans 1, verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Went to the Jews, and then he went to the Greeks. But, but there's also good strategy as well. Why you bring it to the Jews first and then to the Greek. Because the synagogue, you think about who's in the synagogue. These are God-fearing people, or at least to people who have the Scriptures, who are professing an allegiance to God. They, they valued the Scriptures. They, they, they believed them in, in some regards, right? Many of them walked in the ways of the Scripture, but they, said they hadn't understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, so they need to just believe in Jesus and embrace Him. As Paul would come and preach to them, and they, they believed some of his most faithful followers in the church would be those who believe in, uh, who were involved in the synagogue beforehand. Because they're, they're, like, they're like church kids growing up who come to faith in Christ. There's just a lot of good habits, a lot of stories they've heard, and their faith can kind of take off, as opposed to the Greeks who didn't know anything about Jesus. This would be like people who didn't grow up in church, and they hear something about Jesus, and it's sort of new to them, and there's lots of ways that they need to learn to live a little bit differently and the synagogue would provide these faithful followers and that's what paul did he went into the synagogue he preached the jews he did this on three sabbaths the sabbath that's when the jews met for worship it was a saturday and typically in our times of worship there's there's bible reading there's recitations there's prayers there's singing there's chanting whatever and then always comes a message and that's what Paul proclaimed. He, he preached the gospel to them. And as I've put there on the screen, it says this, Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbaths. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying this, Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. It, just notice here what, how it says that he, he preached to them. He, he reasoned with them. He explained to them. He proved to them. And I've just circled those, those words there. That, that, that was Paul when he was, was preaching. He was lo- using logic. He was trying to persuade. In fact, he even says in verse 4, if you look in your Bible, it says some of them were persuaded. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to persuade them to come their way. Pre- Christian preaching is like that. Christianity is logical. It's reasonable. You can explain it to people. There's tangible evidence for believing it, not only in the Scriptures, but also in history you use your mind, right? You can trust the gospel. It's not just some leap of faith that you need to take as if, well, I just hope this is true. No, you have good reason to believe that it's true. 
And that's what Paul was speaking, seeking to do in Thessalonica. So he opened the scriptures to them. He explained what was true about the Messiah. And we see that in, in verse 3. He's trying to, to say that. And, and I love Paul's two-part outline here. In fact, I've even got a picture of here preaching his two-part outline. He preached first the Christ, and then he argued that Jesus was that one. The Christ, that is the anointed one, the Messiah. Scripture says that the Christ must suffer and must rise from the dead. And then he said, secondly, he said, Jesus, that's the Messiah, because he suffered in accordance with what the Scripture said, and he rose from the dead in accordance with what the Scripture said. Can you preach that sermon? Simple two-part outline. Can you preach that? First of all, right, can you prove from the Scripture that the Christ must suffer and die? And can you say, and, and, and prove from the Scripture also He rose from the dead. And can you prove from the Scripture that Jesus indeed did that? This is the fundamental. This is what the Gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, that He was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures. The, the suffering and death of Jesus in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, is clear as a bell. And perhaps even the easiest spot. Like, so if you just say, okay, so Christ, right? The Christ is suffering. Where would you preach that, right? I, I think many of you know. Where would be the first spot you would go? To what chapter? Help me now. I've got to preach that sermon. You've got to preach that sermon to someone. Chapter that describes the suffering of Christ. Isaiah 53. There you go. Just that, that, that chapter there that, that speaks about how, how Jesus was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like he was, he was suffering. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And he even suffered unto death. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted. And he suffered and died like a lamb that was led by slaughter. Isaiah 53 preaches right there that Jesus is the Christ. He must suffer and die. Uh, what about another? Does another passage of the suffering and death of the Messiah from the Old Testament come to mind? Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 says, They'll look upon him whom they have pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Right? The, the Jewish people right, pierced their Messiah. And there's one more that's real prominent in the Old Testament. I'm not sure if you know. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 right there. It, it just speaks about, like, I'm a worm and not a man. I'm despised by people. that They mock me. They wag their heads at me. The dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers surround me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Right there upon the cross. Piercing my hands. Piercing my feet. He says, I can count all my bones, right? Because bones wasn't broken. They divide my garments among them. Speaking of the suffering and the death of the Messiah. These would be good passages for all of you to know. I want to prove to someone, you maybe have a coworker who says, is this, is this really true? Yes, Jesus, the Christ from the Old Testament must suffer and die. Isaiah 53, 
Zechariah 12, Psalm 22. But also it speaks about the Old Testament that Jesus would rise from the dead. The Messiah would rise from the dead. Any passages come to mind of that? There are really two prominent passages. You guys have done so well. You've got all my passages so far. Psalm 16. That Paul has already spoken about in, in Acts chapter 13 when he preached. He, he spoke, chapter 13, verse 34. The fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He's spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. David died. He saw corruption. His tomb was there in Jerusalem. But Jesus was raised from the dead. He was not seen in corruption. Do you guys know another chapter that really speaks clearly about the resurrection? This might be shocking a little bit, but Isaiah 53 does. Isaiah 53 says in verse 10, The Lord, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When, he make, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. So in other words, right, he's going to be killed, but this is the very one who's going to see his offspring prolong his days. He must be raised from the dead. He said, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So in other words, right, he's, he's going to divide the souls. He's going to get them because he died and just speaks clearly about the resurrection. Another other passage about the resurrection, say from the Pentateuch, where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, but God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, are risen. They're alive. Right? That doesn't speak of the resurrection of the Messiah. And there are many other passages that speak about resurrection in general. But this one speaks about the resurrection uh, of the Messiah. And then establishing the fact, he went in and he preached, okay, the Christ. Let me show you what the, the Old Testament says about the Christ. He has to suffer, he has to die, he has to rise from the dead. And then he transitioned to his second point. He said, let me preach to you Jesus. Jesus fulfilled everything the Messiah was going to be. Isaiah 7.14 said that he'd be born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin. Micah 5, verse 2 says he'd be born in Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. Hosea 11, verse 1 says he was called out of Egypt. He spent some time in Egypt, and he came out of Egypt. His cousin, John, had some miraculous birth as well. And John claimed that he was the messenger that Malachi had foretold, pointing the way to Jesus. And that indeed is exactly what John the Baptist did. And you look at the character of the life of Jesus. He did everything that Messiah was said to do in Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He cleansed the leper. He opened the ears of the deaf. He healed the lame. Gave speech to the mute. <clears throat> then it all came the climax of the Passover when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey just like Zechariah 9, 9 had foretold. And there when all the Passover lambs were being sacrificed, Jesus died as a lamb going to slaughter just like John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Having been rejected by the leaders, just like Psalm 118 says, the stone which the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. And Jesus died, suffered on that cross, the hand of the, the Romans, <clears throat> crucified. And they took him down from that cross, and they laid him in a tomb, and he was there. But on the third day, he rose from the dead, and he appeared to many people alive. And then he ascended into heaven. So repent. 
and believe in Jesus. Believe in this Christ who suffered and died. And Jesus was that Christ. He's the Messiah. Repent and believe in him. It's the most simple message. You should be able to preach something like that to your coworker. Maybe not preach in a formal sense, standing up here monologuing, but even taking a Bible and just say, let's, let's just read Isaiah 53 together and read it line by line and explain it. Or, or even talk just, just really quickly uh, of just how it is that, that the Old Testament prophesied of a Messiah that would suffer and die and rise again. And Jesus fulfilled that exactly. Like that's the thrust of the book of Acts, is to be able to speak to people like that. That we want to be his witnesses. In fact, later in Thessalonica, Paul's speaking about his own preaching. He said this, You yourselves know, brothers, 1 Thessalonians verses chapter 2, 1 and 2, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. It's so interesting how the how the epistles right all match up. Like if you know the storyline of Acts, you can put the epistles sort of right in there. And in Acts chapter seventeen is to Thessalonica, and he later writes to Thessalonica. Said we had a hard time in Phil- in Philippi. Remember what happened in Philippi? How he was in prison and beaten unjustly, and then um, brought into prison, and then he was sent out of the city. That that's how he came, being mistreated in Philippi. We came to you, and then he said, "I came to you with boldness." Maybe can you preach this message? Can you preach it like Paul did? Paul preached it with boldness. Telling others of the Christ. Telling others of Jesus. When it comes down to it, right? Maybe that might be our our biggest hindrance. We aren't witnesses because we aren't bold enough really to tell people of Jesus. I was talking with some teenagers this, this past week. Happened to come by the church. Lily, good to see you. Lily was part of Kids Club like years. It's been like five years since I've seen you, Lily, right? Something like that. It's good to have you. But she was here with some of her friends. And I, I asked some of her friends who were around her, I said, have you ever been to church? And they, they hadn't been to church. Very little, maybe a church service or two. And I just, I just told them, like, here at church, we deal with the, the most important things of our lives, like how we can have our sins forgiven before the Lord and how important it is to come. And so, so, so come. And they said, oh, we, we, we can't come. They had bikes. So they rode over here on their bikes. I said, you can come. Just like Lily, you've come. Thanks for coming. But just boldness, right, to see a situation and then to speak about it and then to bring people and to, to invite them. To tell them just really quickly about how in Jesus all your sins can be forgiven. You can be made righteous. It's a key to our witness for Jesus to be bold like Paul. Can you be bold like Paul? Are you bold like Paul? Can you preach like Paul? You may have the message, but he preached in boldness. But he also, secondly, he preached in love. He said later to those in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you became very dear to us. So in other words, right, we preached to you in love, like we cared for you. Right? This wasn't one, sta- one, whatever, Paul standing up and just preaching out and then leaving. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to talk about preaching. He says, one thing to love to preach 
It's another thing altogether to love those to whom you preach. And he's talking about this right here, that Paul said he loved those to whom he preached. He was there. He cared for them. And and if your preaching will be effective, it's got to have both boldness and it has to have love as well. Well, Paul preached like that and his message was received well. We see in verse 4 how some were persuaded to join Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Some of the Jews followed Paul and Silas, but it says here even more, a great many of of the Greeks followed Paul and Silas. The devout Greeks, that may have been the the proselytes in in the synagogue. When they realized the gospel has come to them, that they can come to God fully apart from the entrapments of the Jewish culture, they were thrilled. And a great many, and even on top of that, not a, a few of the leading women. This was a great reception. This was revival that broke out. Many people believing in the gospel. Many people believing that Jesus was indeed the Christ. That he died for our sins to be made right with him. In fact, we've seen so many revivals in the book of Acts. It almost becomes normal place for us. It no longer surprises us really. But th- this is no normal, normal thing. It's, it was an outpouring of the Spirit of God in the early church. And to this, we can only say, God, may you do that again. May you pour out your spirit upon us so that in three Sabbath preaching sessions, and maybe Paul stayed a little bit after that, but it wasn't long, just in a short period of time, there are many people who came, many people received the message that you brought. Many men, many women, many children repented of their sins, trusted in Christ, and made righteous and holy before him. Well, whenever there comes great reception of the gospel, there's always opposition. And we see this in verses 5 through 9. I'm calling it a great rejection. There's a great reception, and now we see the great rejection. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men also have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. The people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now Paul would later describe this interaction of this rejection when they were rejected from the town and, and pushed out of the town and commanded to go. Um, he would later describe this as being torn away from them. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. Paul didn't want to leave Thessalonica. He loved the people there. He was forced to leave. He, and it really, it ripped his heart. If you think about a piece of material, just kind of being torn away. That's how he described it. See, there's something about those in Thessalonica that captured Paul's heart deeply. And when you read 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, you're stunned by the affection that Paul had for them there. In those letters, Paul talks about tenderly caring for the people there, like a, like a mother who cares for her children. She said, you became very dear to us. That we were like a father exhorting you who wants the best for his children, to urge his children on. He said they worked night and day because they didn't want to be a burden to them. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 19 and 20. He says this, he says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? 
Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. You're our glory. You're our joy. That, that, that's what we are excited about. We think about We think about the coming of Christ. And then later when he was in Corinth, when, when he heard the good news about how well they were doing, because Timothy was left behind, left behind and he was in, in uh, Thessalonica, and then he came and brought to Paul the news. We'll read about that in Acts chapter 18 when we get there. He's in Corinth. He hears the news that the Thessalonians, right, they, they weren't the believers that sprouted up only to fall away. These were the believers that were true and genuine. He says this, but now that Timothy has come back to us from you, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. In other words, he says this, we were super encouraged to hear that your faith was continuing on. In fact, he says, now we really live because you're continuing on. Faith, love, Christ. In fact, I would argue this way. You won't understand First and Second Thessalonians rightly unless you understand this deep affection that Paul had for those in Thessalonica. He didn't want to leave. He was torn away. But it was the Jews that drove him away from the city as they rejected him. You say, why did they reject him? Well, verse 5 tells us why. He says they rejected him, but the Jews were jealous. This is fundamental at it. Jealous, or, or oftentimes translated zealous. They had a zeal as well. So this jealousy they had was wrapped up in this zeal, this passion that was against him. See, they were zealous for their old religion, not for this new thing that Paul was, was bringing. And, and as more and more people in Thessalonica were coming to the Lord, they were not they were not happy. In fact, that's what took place in city in Antioch. Um, remember when Paul's first missionary journey, when he, he preached that Sabbath morning, and, and almost everybody said, oh, please come back again. Tell us these things. And there was scuttle in the town. And it says in Acts chapter 13, verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And chapter 13, verse 45, uh, I'm sorry, so they began to, they're filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. They're not only jealous, but they said, no, we, we want to be against you. We're, we're not for you. We are against you. And they've been reviling him and contradicting him and saying how wrong he was. In the same way here, the Jews were, were jealous as well. They were jealous at this great reception of the gospel was over here. That they rejected these people. Right? They, in their, their accepting of things, basically their accepting of things was rejecting the old religion, if you will. And, and, and these in the old religion didn't want that. So they had to get these out of there. They rejected them. These Jews believed themselves to be keepers of the truth, losing their influence on these people are following after this new way. And they did whatever they could do to resist this movement. Right? Things were so bad in their minds, they're willing to resort to evil tactics. The Jews believe the end justifies the means. Verse 5, look what they did. They, they took some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set a city in uproar, 
and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out. Wicked men of the rabble. I mean, you just picture in your mind just who those people might be. I, I don't know what comes to your mind. But, but these are guys just kind of, you know, maybe homeless, maybe just troublemakers, maybe, you know, the people are just boozing it up and they're raucous and they're, they're not living for God, whatever. They're just looking for a cause. And, and then the Jews come and they, they pay them and they say, hey, we want you to ra- rally against here. And so they, they form this mob. They, they create this chaos in the city. And they even attack the house of Jason. These no goods are coming and the Jews are employing these people. It shows you kind of how wicked the Jews were. They, they just thought they could do anything right, to stop this Christianity. Paul even thought he could kill people, right? Bound them, bring them to Jerusalem. Beat them for following after this way. It's a far cry from what we think about today. If people go astray, we, we recall them, we urge them, we care for them, we plead them to come back. But Paul's day, they would, they would beat him with rods. Maybe like cults do, right? Bringing someone back in. That's what Paul saw that. And that was a common tactic employed by the Jews in sitting in Antioch when they formed a mob. They ran him out of town. In Iconium, they formed a mob and they kicked him out of the city. In Lystra, they formed a mob, even tried to kill him, pelting him with stones so much so that he looked like he was dead. Mobs were a common way of dealing with things back then, <laughs> like today. When there's civil unrest in our society, there are oftentimes mobs that, that form a way to intimidate people, take justice into the hands of the people. I mean, racial unrest brings out mobs today. Uh, political protests will bring about mobs. Uh, I've even heard that people go and they pay these professional mob people to come and move to the city and so form a mob. Oh, next city, we're going to do it here. We're going to do it here. Right? Just not even the people of the city, but people being brought in. To form these mobs. Not, not a lot has changed between now, between then and now. Why? Because mobs work. Mob gets, mobs get the attention of, of everyone. Remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate? If it was up to Pilate, he would have let Jesus go. But the only reason he didn't was because the mobs came. And they said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He said, well, okay, have at it. Because he couldn't persuade the, the mobs. And really, that's politically what's, what's going on is the, the politicians, they want unity. They don't, they don't want disruption in that. But here we know, they went to the house of Jason. Now, we don't know anything about Jason other than what we read here in these three or four verses or so. But apparently, he became a follower of Jesus, invited Paul, and Timothy, and Silas. Luke, by the way, is probably not here anymore because Luke is using the word they. Luke probably stayed in Philippi. Because the we sections have stopped, it's they. So it's probably Luke and Sil- uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy he brought, invited them into his home. Just like Lydia, remember when Lydia got open her heart to believe the things Paul was speaking about? She believed the gospel and she brought the missionaries into her home. Just like the Philippian jailer, when the Philippian jailer believed in the Lord Jesus, he brought these men, Paul and Silas, treated their wounds into his home. It's a pattern in Acts. When people come to faith in Christ, there's a, an affection for those who preach the good news to them. That's, that's a, just the Old Testament says, it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Just those who preach the good news, they have beautiful feet. Thank you for coming and traveling. And there's this embrace. Converts want to be near those who first preach to them. Despite the shame, despite what was happening. And, and J- Jason, 
was not ashamed to welcome them in. He certainly knew the danger and hostility would come. He's willing to play host to these missionaries. And then the story continues in verse 6. It says, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. That's where the title of my message comes from again this morning, turning the world upside down. They've come here. They're doing the same. They're, they're disrupting our society, and it's for the worst. Let's get them out of here. Now, this is difficult for us to understand, I think, in our culture today. How is it that turning from sin to righteousness could be so bad in a society? I mean, in our society, with a Christian heritage, right? when people become Christians, we're often encouraged. Right? Particularly when the drug addict finds Jesus and is delivered from drugs. Right? We don't get all, people in our society in general don't get all mad and hostile at that. It's like, oh, even if they don't believe it, like, oh, if they found Jesus and if Jesus helps them and, and they're rid of their, their drug addiction, well, good for them. They're super encouraged by that, people are. Even if they don't believe themselves. In our society, even like the, the jails are bad enough that the jails are like, okay, Christians, why don't you, you all just come in and maybe this will help. And if it helps, the jails are happy. Like it doesn't matter, even if they don't believe in Jesus, even if there's a whatever institution, as long as this helps, that's wonderful. In fact, Gary Lundberg sent me this email about spending this past weekend ministering to those in jail. He said, Steve, this, the weekend has been going very well. Today we had a testimony time for the men to share what we're what they are learning on the weekend that's changing their submission to God's will and letting the Holy Spirit help them to grow like Christ. What a blessing to hear, to hear the testimony of how God is feeding their soul with love. It's been very challenging, scriptural study and small group discussions. I think anyone at Rock Valley Bible Church would be amazed at how well they understand what the Bible teaches about life and discipleship and Christian growth. After we stop the official small group discussions and take breaks, I sit nearby and overhear the table conversations as they continue to analyze and process the lessons some more. Any teacher would love to have earnest students like these men. I have, we have one more day and finish Sunday afternoon. I give my talk about 11 o'clock on Sunday. What time is it? Gary's talking right now to these inmates who are receptive. In fact, let, let me just pray for Gary right now. Father, I pray as Gary is in the jail right now and he's preaching to these men who have been in some discipleship programs and are open to the gospel. So pray to give him great effectiveness. Thank you for his zeal even to go into the, um, into the jails. God, what a wonderful thing that is to help give these uh, inmates hope, whether they spend their time in prison or whether they are, are set free. We pray his message today would come with power and conviction, just like Paul's did in First Thessalonians and in Acts 17, as he said. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But even the world sees this and says, oh, wonderful, right? Some reform is happening among the inmates in the jail. But that, that, that's not always the case, though. There are plenty of cases in our culture where... Christianity comes and it has been met with rejection and resistance rather than joy at the reception of others. I have heard enough stories where children have been disowned by their parents when they come to Christ. Even being beaten and assaulted by their parents for coming to Christ because they've forsaken their family traditions. 
You're not going to be able to be buried with us anymore, right? You're pursuing this other way. You've, you've forsaken the, your grandfather and your grandfather's father, right? Coming out of this religious system into Christianity. We've seen that before. Now, I face it, and I remember in my working days facing some accusations from people. Um, my boss gave me a, a review one time, and I was told in my review, said that my Bible studies and my church talk as I was there in my, my cubicle was alienating people. My, my, boss, my boss said my fellow workers said that they felt uncomfortable when I talk about religion with other people. And my boss told me, please try to keep these things to yourselves. I remember I had my name on a, a church brochure, my desk at work, and um, it was just kind of buried there someplace. And, and we had somewhat shared desks in our environment where we were, but it was, it was sitting right there and and it was a brochure for the church that actually then eventually sent us up here. Uh, when I was ministering to college students, and just on the brochure, I had something that said, Steve Brandon, come, a college pastor, just to give some credibility there with some college students. And uh, I picked it up one day, and it was scratched out. It says, Steve Brandon, bozo on it. That's just kind of the, the things that I remember facing, just in a subtle way, where, where people were rejecting the message rather than re- receiving it well. And I want to say church family, right? It's, it's always been this way. The world hates us because we love Jesus. Jesus said this, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. And I just say this, if ever Christianity would take greater hold in our society, there would be, and uh, begin to transform it, there would be an uproar. I mean, just look at what's happening now that Roe versus Wade is um, on the verge of being struck down. It really doesn't change a lot because people can travel over state lines to get their abortions, and it's all state-decided. Abortion will still be available to people in the United States, but the fact it's not declared a universal right of all women has people all up in arms and angry. I mean, can, can you just imagine, right, what, what, what would happen if some more things would take place, like if if gay marriage were suddenly stopped in our country, how much antagonism would be against that, like Christians would be hated and despised even more than we are now. In fact, when it comes to the world, Christianity is often despised, especially when it brings a change to society. Nepal and India, where I've gone on missions trips, there's anti-conversion laws. It's against the law to convert. In communistic societies, there are regulations against preaching because the, the change that it will bring, because re, re, the, the leaders in the world want stability. And so anything that's bringing instability, they are hating that, even if it means a change for the good. And it's not just political orders that do that as well. Think about the times of the Reformation, how much the Roman Catholic Church hated Martin Luther and hated all these Protestants that was surging and coming out. Think about how the Roman Catholic Church hated the Bible being printed <clears throat> because the, the priests held it in their hands and, the, and they could only tell you what they wanted to tell you, misinterpret the Bible there. But when people saw it in their hands and their lives are being transformed and they're turning from their, their sin to righteousness, the church hated that because they're living power. I think even about here, right? We have the great rejection. There's even a, a time in history that was called the, the great, I think it was called the great rejection, 1662. Great Britain, United Kingdom. They had the Church of England, 
And then you had what you had is the, uh, it was called the Great Ejection. You had all of these preachers who got out of the Church of England and who were then preaching on their own in homes. <gasps> Not church buildings, right? In gathering places, in open air. <gasps> How bad that is. And they weren't following the common book of order. They were just opening the Bible and preaching it. Men like John Owen and John Bunyan and Susanna Wesley and, and, and others, John Rippon, other Puritans. They were hated, despised. And, and there was a date in uh, 1662 where every one of these pastors who were not submitting themselves to the Church of England were ejected from the church. I have a great book in my, my home. It's called uh, Farewell Sermons. That it records all the sermons in which these men preached on that very last Sunday before they're getting booted. So there was a society, the, the church. So, so imagine, right? Some ecclesiastical church people just saying, okay, this is your last Sunday. You can't meet here anymore. And so I'd preach my last sermon and then I'd be gone. It would be illegal. And I was ejected from the church and banished from the country or thrown in jail. Why do you think John Bunyan spent so many years in jail? It's because he refused to submit to the religious leaders in the Church of England. He wanted to preach the Bible like we preach. We would be ejected. We're part of that nonconformist part of that. The people, leaders, want the status quo. They want feather, don't want feathers to be ruffled. Don't want these, these revolutionaries coming into our society. And Jason right here was the one who was, was helping them. We look at verse 7 then. He says, Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. <laughs> I love that. This is what they had against Jason. This is what they had against uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy. They're preaching this message about another king, not Caesar, but this other king, Jesus. So not only do they have this history about how the world is being turned upside down, but they also have this message. They said they're preaching another King Jesus. And what I love about this is they got the message right. Here were these non-Christians, right, these Jewish people, hating these Christians coming in and trying to kick them out by using the very same gospel message that Paul and Silas had proclaimed. Because that is the gospel message. We have a king his name is Jesus, and we need to bow to Him now and submit to Him. In fact, uh, remember when Jesus was crucified? What was the charge against Jesus that put on the top of the cross? What was it put on there? What was it say? King of the Jews. In Latin, in Greek, and in Hebrew. And you remember the Jews even wanted Pilate to, to say, no, say, I say I'm King of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, what I've written, I've written. This is the charge is that he is the king of the Jews. And I just, I just tell you that if you want a simple gospel message, even to think about, about this message here, right? The Christ and Jesus. Another thing you could say is just preach King Jesus. Jesus is the king to whom we need to repent and, and bow down to and submit to as the sovereign king. And it's, we're going to go along here in the book of Acts. We're going to see several times in which Paul is speaking about the kingdom. In Acts chapter 19 to Ephesus, he's going to be reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God, is what it says. And Paul, when he gave his farewell address to those in Ephesus, he says that I went about preaching the kingdom. There's this kingdom we preach about, the King Jesus. And in fact, the book of Acts ends 
with Paul under house arrest, welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God. Then 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, Paul urges, he says, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he even use this king motif to realize that, 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 that he is the Lord. He's the sovereign king to whom we need to, to bow down to. This is the gospel, right? And the simplicity, right? A king has come to establish his kingdom and he's looking for subjects of that kingdom. Are you going to sign up? Are you going to follow this king? Are you going to follow the kings of the world? If you do, right, repent and believe and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and sacrifice upon the cross, which really is a, is a nice transition for us perfectly this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So we, we think about what does it mean? What does the cup mean? What does the bread mean? It means that we are willing subjects to this King, Jesus. Right? And we're willing to suffer anything. Even Jason, right? We're willing to, to, to suffer our, our house being assaulted. And really being, being willing to suffer, right? Being taken out before the crowds. And Jason didn't back down. He said, no, I've got this King I'm following. And his name is Jesus. What he says, I will do. And one of the things he said to do was that, that last night when he took a bread and he took a cup, he said, you know what? Just remember me by this. Remember me of how I died for your sins and, and, and how I, my blood was spilled out as the new covenant for your sins. And just by, by way of finishing up the text, it says the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, world being turned upside down, following another King Jesus, using a half-truth. Like Jesus' kingdom wasn't this world. It's not like we dispose, depose the kings of this world. It's not like we depose the president. Or depose our mayors. No, we, we submit to them and follow them, but they're all under King Jesus. They're like sub-rulers. But these people were disturbed. The city authorities, authorities disturbed, like, oh, there might be this uproar. And so they, when they'd taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So basically, Jason said, you know what? I, I promise to leave town. And because um, I'm sure he's talking to Paul in the back room, and Paul's saying, you know what? No, I, I, I can go. So um, he's going out. Jason says, okay, stop, stop, stop here. I'm putting my bail up, if you will. I, I'm, I'm giving you some money. This is a pledge. They'll be out of town. And as they went out of town, it says in verse 11, they, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And then they went to the Jewish synagogue, and we'll look at that next week. But he gave a pledge to them. And then when they were gone, I think Jason probably received that pledge money back. It was just like, a down, we're, we're, we can restore peace here. We're okay. The troublemakers got back. But the message was going to continue to infiltrate through everything, the message of the gospel, that Christ suffered, he died for our sins, and he was risen from the dead, that we might be justified before God. And that's what we're going to celebrate here in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite the music team, why don't you, why don't you come on up and uh, lead us in, in a song. Uh, if you haven't um, got a, a cup and, and bread, you can uh, get that now. Um, and then I'll, I'll come back up, we'll eat the bread and we'll drink of the cup in just a, a few minutes.